Welcome to the Fordham IPLJ podcast with your online editor, Anthony Zangrillo. This week we have a very special guest, James Samataro, the managing partner of Struck Struck and Levin's Miami office. Launching into our topic, on Wednesday, January 18th, Paul McCartney filed a federal lawsuit against the music publisher Sony ATV over the ownership of some of the Beatles' most famous songs. Mr. McCartney's suit involves a claim of copyright termination. Under this legal concept, authors, or any creators, have the right to reclaim ownership of their works from publishers after a specific length of time has passed. It was part of the 1976 Copyright Act, and in recent years has become a potent force in the music industry, as performers and songwriters have used the law to regain control of their work. In Mr. McCartney's suit, Filed in the United States District Court in Manhattan, lawyers for the singer detailed the steps they have taken over the last nine years to reclaim Mr. McCartney's piece of the copyrights in dozens of Beatles songs he wrote with John Lennon, including Love Me Do, I Want to Hold Your Hand, and All You Need Is Love. That process involved filing numerous legal notices, which, the suit says, should be enough to guarantee that Sony ATV would return the rights to Mr. McCartney starting in October 2018. As Mr. McCartney's suit notes, he and Mr. Lennon signed a series of publishing contracts in Britain beginning in 1962. The suit contends that in a series of remarks and emails to Mr. McCartney's lawyers, Sony ATV executives alluded to the recently decided Duran Duran case and refused to confirm that Mr. McCartney could reclaim his rights. This suit asks for a declarative judgment that Mr. McCartney would not be violating any contract by exercising his termination rights. James, what are the advantages for Mr. McCartney in bringing a declaratory action against Sony ATV? Determined, I don't want to have any choice of law issues, obviously the Beatles are a UK band, uh, as to where these works were created, which law could apply, or Lenny at least try to get ahead of that issue by, by preemptively filing, which is what he did. And Sony's response to the lawsuit was, yeah, it's regrettable, it's premature, and at this particular moment, we don't have an issue. Uh, the, these termination rights did not come into play until 2018, so why are we fighting now? And that will probably be their first defense will be one of brightness. Do you think Sony would have tried to use the Duran Duran decision to keep the rights? So, yes. And uh, certainly on the, it's hard to, dip, to divine someone else's motives. They do have a long history of working well with Sir Paul McCarthy and the John Lennon estate. But the, the descendant in the Duran Duran action was a Sony subsidiary. And there are significant consequences to a termination right. I mean, if you look at the impact of termination, well, look at it as a global scale and can narrow it down a little bit. But the impact, depending on the nature of the revenue that's generated by the copyrighted works, is substantial. It can result in a reduction of asset value, which it would definitely do for Sony ATV. It can disrupt collateral pools. It can create commercial uncertainty. So all those issues are very much in play. So if, at the very least, Sony ATV would use it as a right of leverage, which is what typically happens a lot of times artists so under the 1978 act 2013 was the first year in which the termination right could be effectuated you have to give advance notice it's very very technical that's the one thing it, it 
the simplicity of the statute is belied by some of the technicalities and actually giving the termination notice. So what typically happens is uh, an artist will have to first give notice um, before the five-year window opens. Then they, they actually effectuate the, the termination notice. But what happens with that advance notice is it sets the, the, the renegotiation clock. So in 2011, in advance of the 2013, 2013 termination, right, Tom Petty, Tom Waits, Blondie, Bob Dylan, The Eagles, Journey, Barbara Streisand, a host of other artists, effectuated notices and renegotiated. So at a minimum, if Sony was acting as an economically rational and prudent business company, which they are, they would certainly use the Duran Duran decision to gain negotiation leverage. Would they ultimately seek to terminate? No, perhaps not, because it's been a fruitful enterprise for both parties uh, for, for a number of years. But it's a very, at the very least, it changes the dynamics of the negotiation. And that's certainly what this lawsuit is. I, I'd be surprised if this lawsuit is not ultimately resolved, uh, which is just a new publishing deal between the two, mm -hmm. the two parties. Do you see almost like an inequity in the law that like foreign authors, we would think, should get the same rights as domestic ones? It's a good question. And in a certain sense, perhaps. But, you know, the, the Copyright Act by nature is, is non-territorial. It, it only extends within the confines of the United States. It, it, in a certain sense, it would be a little bit brazen and maybe a little pedantic to say that the U.S. copyright scheme is the only appropriate copyright scheme and the only scheme that appropriately measures the value of work. I mean, ultimately what the Copyright Act is designed to do is not so much to mono give a monopoly to the authors, but to be you know, a creative engine of free expression by giving them a, a limited monopoly with the hope of ultimately spurring people to put more creative works into the, what will ultimately become the public domain. So certain societies, certain countries, they may have a different view as to the value of having works in the public domain. So I do think it's, at a very simplistic level, yes, it would seem why would a foreign artist get less protection, particularly when he is, you know, his work is primarily, his or her work is primarily featured and exploited and monetized in the United States. But there are, there are a lot of philosophical reasons that underline not only the United States Copyright Act, but the corresponding acts effectuated in other countries. Do you see any other artists possibly bringing suits similar to this one? I think a lot of artists are likely to be watching this decision as well as the ultimate continuation of the Duran Duran, which is now up an appeal. Determination right is a very, uh, you know, some people predicted that it was going to be a raptor and it was going to be kind of the end of the world as we know it. It certainly is not, it certainly is not proved to be that to be the case. But what it is, is it, it really is bad deal protection for young artists who signed, signed away their rights before either having bargaining leverage or really appreciating the value of their work. But for established artists, it is the right for them to kind of reset the scale. And it's a very powerful tool. If you, know, you either wait 35 years for it or over 50 years, 56 years for it. And it, it is a way to regenerate additional revenue by increasing the royalties or just increasing your leverage by getting a better economic deal as a whole. So it, it would almost be foolish not to exercise that right. 
because it, it does one of two things. It allows you to renegotiate with the current grantee, your current publisher, for the case of a musician or a, a, a writer, or it allows you to go out and shop your works in the marketplace to see if there is a secondary life. For some artists, they may just feel my work product should have been exploited greater. It had someone showcased it or highlighted it, it would have gotten to the marketplace. So it really it, it, it frees them up to not only A, try to make more money, but B, to explore what the marketplace may bear for their work. I would say when you, when you describe the original intent almost to help new um, artists in the market, maybe it should be limited that if you are established, let's say somebody like Paul McCartney, that you don't have uh, access to this remedy. There was, so the, the actual, if you look at the legislative intent that was put into the, the pertinent termination provisions, 203 and 302, it really, the word was a safeguard. That was the kind of the key word. The safeguard authors in their economic interest. And there was a lot of discussion about inequitable or non-compensable transfers. There really wasn't an intention to say, but more successful artists or artists who had, you know, at least a modicum of bargaining power should get less protection. The, the view was that all authors, all owners of copyright aren't necessarily going to be able to have a crystal ball. I mean, Paul McCarthy certainly has more market value now because what he has is five decades of realizing that his work is going to continue to generate revenue. I don't think he could have predicted that when he was writing a song in 1962 that there still be a market demand for it in 2017 and 2018. So in a certain sense, I agree with the principle, which was it was the, the stated intention was to say for all authors, but kind of the subtext was we really need to help those who enter into poor deals. And certainly Paul McCarthy probably had the luxury and the benefit, even in 1962, of having better legal counsel, better representation around him to make sure he cut at least what was a market value deal. But over five decades, the market value has shifted, and he should be allowed, which is at least according to Congress, he should be allowed to get the benefit of those shifting market dynamics. Yes. It, it, it's a really important right, and uh, it. Ultimately, what it does is it, it, it alleviates all authors from signing that one really onerous sentence that's contained in pretty much every transfer of copyright or assignment of copyright contract. Because what it does is it says, this: most contracts will say, you are signing any and all of your copyright interests in perpetuity. Mm -hmm. And what the, what the termination right says is, that, that language gets trumped. Even if it's clear and unequivocal, it's going to get trumped. Now, there, there's a lot of nuance to the termination right, and, and it's important to point that out, and I don't want to get too far into it because it's frankly a little bit dull, but the termination right, uh, it doesn't apply to you know, works that have been granted by will, so that limits who can actually exercise the termination. Pre-termination derivative works, don't necessarily fall completely within it. So, for example, if I'm an author of a book, I give someone the right to make a film on my book. When I terminate the literary rights, it doesn't necessarily terminate the rights of the second person to make that film. That their, their film rights remain unimpacted. And then the third category is works for hire as to who owns the termination right, whether the termination right applies. That gets, that gets really complicated. And there's also some bewildering case law that has come out um, well, they might not be the right term, but certainly uneven or surprising results. And some of it is um, if you have, if you enter into an agreement 
and then you enter into a subsequent new copyright grant. Courts have said in that secondary agreement where you essentially repped and warranted and said, I understand I have these earlier rights, but I'm I, this older right, but I'm going to give you new rights. The courts have said, well, that's not an agreement to the contrary. So in those cases, and then the most famous one is really with the Steinbeck estate, uh, in cases Penguin Group versus Steinbeck. In that case, the court has said, no, that second agreement that you entered into did result in a forfeiture of your termination rights. And the devil really is in the detail. There's a lot of there's a lot of details you need to pay attention to when you're trying to effectuate a termination. There are there's windowing, so you have, for example, with the post 1978 work, the first year termination window opens 35 years after the date of the granting of the copyright. So in that instance, it would be March 1 of 2014, and then the, the window closes on March 1 of 2019. And then she has to give notice within that window, and that notice needs to be very specific and it's very technical. And there is often a lot of legal wrangling, legal wrangling, because there's significant stakes at issue. So when there's a high-producing copyright that's being terminated, you can expect that there will be litigation. So this this one, in a certain sense, is Paul McCarthy lawsuit, is more of a preemptive strike, designed probably largely to establish venue and mm -hmm. maybe accelerate the negotiations that are going on, but there are many instances where the fight really is whether or not the termination was proper and whether or not it can actually be effectuated. Uh, now as like a final little fun question, I noticed that the legal threshold I believe was 75000 so in the initial suit, Paul McCartney's lawyers say the catalog is worth well in excess of 75000 so what do you think the actual value is? It's a really, really good question. So I know that when Michael Jackson bought a portion uh, of the catalog in, I think it was 1985 is when he purchased it. I think he purchased it at $47.5 Wow. And he later worked the form with Sony ATV. And according to the, a book, which is called Michael Jackson, Inc., I think the value of the catalog by 2014 had mushroomed up to $2 billion. So it, there, there was other works aside from the Beatles' work, but the Beatles' works were definitely the driving uh, price point of the catalog. But we went from $47.5 million to $2 billion in about a 20-year period. So we're, we, we're talking about sizable, sizable amounts of money because it's about 267 works that have already had a five-decade history, and I don't think there's anyone predicting that the Beatles music is going to go out of fashion, <laughs> uh, and, they, and it's just a steady diet of uh, generation after generation, people listening to the Beatles, and as they continue to consume music in new ways, there will be new monetary streams to, or new streams to monetize, so it, it, it's a sizable amount of money. Thank you very much uh, for being on the podcast this week, James. Thanks for having me, Anthony. Always good to talk to you.